Surprise, listeners. Yes, yes, I know. All I've been saying for weeks is no episodes in December. No episodes in December. What I really should have said is no new episodes in December. See, I am taking the month off, but I don't want y'all to get lonely. I don't want y'all to go cheating on me with another podcast. So to try to keep my babies happy, what we're doing is releasing some of my favorite classic Killing Missing Hidden episodes over the month of December. I think we've got six that we're going to release throughout the month, which is easy to do when you've already recorded it. All I have to do is record this silly little intro and then boom, good to go. So I hope you enjoy what we've got ahead. This one happens to be, I think this is my favorite episode that we've ever recorded. The Nahani Valley up in Canada, this weird, mysterious place. You know, we've, we in the United States, at least, have heard a lot about Skinwalker Ranch over in the uh, Southwest. But this, this is kind of Canadian, the Canadian version of that. Only I think it's a lot weirder and a lot scarier. And you're just going to hear some things that defy explanation. So I hope you enjoy it. I know a lot of y'all have already listened to this one, but this way you get to be with me again. It's another week of Brad. What could be better than that? It'll keep you warm, you know, when you're feeling cold. Unless you're down in Lake Australia, then then it'll keep you cool while you're feeling hot. I'm smart enough to know how all that works. So here you go. A good old classic Killing Missing Hidden episode from many moons ago about the Nahani Valley. I think this was our 85th episode. And it's a long one. So we'll see you next week. The Nahani National Park Reserve is just stunning. This has been one of my favorite episodes to research because of all the majestic photography that goes along with each article I read about this neck of the woods. The park is located in Canada in the Northwest Territories. It's such a beautiful spot that not only does Canada protect it, but it's been named as a World Heritage Site by the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. In fact, it was one of the first four places in the entire world to receive that designation. And like to get that designation apparently is a huge deal because it can't just be like, you know, oh, there's a bunch of pretty trees here. <laughs> it has to have like a mega cultural, historic, or scientific significance to society as a whole and it's such a beautiful area and there's lots of history and we're going to get into some of that here that uh, is culturally culturally relevant is that how normal people say it that you know the entire world has decided that no one's going to mess with this chunk of land so why does this beacon of absolute beauty contain areas known as the Valley of the Headless Men, or the Funeral Range, and a little spot known as Hell's Gate. 
why have trappers and explorers and writers describe this paradigm of nature and beauty as if it were a haunted house? I mean, people have written such things as, quote, there is absolutely no denying the sinister atmosphere of that whole valley. Or that the, quote, weird continual wailing of the wind, unquote, was something that could never be forgotten. Obviously, we're not a travel podcast. We're not a geography podcast. Or, you know, I've just been doing a really, really crappy job at this gig, if we are one of those and nobody told me. Um, that may be why nobody wants to write me a paycheck. Uh, now, what we've got here is this creepy just odd area of the world that has lots of colorful history of bad things happening. So since we're a podcast about bad things, I figured we should stick our nose into what's shaking here. Now, having said all that, I do want to spend a moment describing the area itself for context, at least on like a Wikipedia type level. Okay. So the, Park area resides in a region that was originally occupied by the Dene, a First Nations people who primarily lived in the Arctic regions of modern-day Canada. The first human occupation is thought to have occurred, you know, nine to 10,000 years ago. While the Dene are kind of like, you know, said to hold this land, their legends actually claim that they weren't the first, that there was a Naha tribe that lived in the valley and mountains who were, you know, a little notorious for being raiders and a little murderous and all that. But their legends also say the Naha just kind of disappeared one day. And, like, when we say disappeared, it was one of those mysterious things where it's like, Huts were found, tools were found, food was found, no people were found. Now, Europeans first made contact with the Diné back in the 18th century. Soon, of course, the Europeans are establishing trading posts in the area as best they could. And by the 19th century, the Diné had kind of gotten comfortable with the white man being around. And the Diné had kind of changed lifestyles. They started establishing little villages and started uh, trade relations with the Europeans. Um, and the Diné kind of had a little bit of a trance over the Europeans because they always made these really impressive entrances. Um, they would, the Diné still kind of lived up in the mountainous region. So what they would do is sail down these rapids because all the rivers here are just crazy rapids from what I can tell and stop at these trading posts in like a superhero style. And then they'd get out of the boats and they'd deconstruct their little canoes and they would have all this hide and other supplies that they, you know, very good quality, very well taken care of. And they would trade it for other things that they needed. And then they would um, just hike back into the settlements with all their loot. A lot of times they'd bring dogs with them to help, you know, kind of carry the stuff, little pack dogs. Um, but, that's kind of how they adapted to the Europeans coming in and how they grew as a people. Now, it's worth mentioning, like I said, they stayed up in the mountains because they viewed the Nahani Valley area, at least the proper valley area, 
was a cursed land in their legends, and they refused to go down in it. They didn't want anything to do with it. You know, the European forts were as close as they would get to it. And of course, the Europeans heard these legends, took them, and ran with them, um, usually take them up a notch or two. So you hear them tell stories about these white monsters in the woods and all sorts of other unsettling things when you came to visit some of these trading posts. Now, this park at that, that's been defined is dominated by several rivers and waterfalls, as well as four really impressive canyons. The main kind of geological feature here, not that I'm a geologist, seems to be the South Nahani River, and it runs the length of the park. And it's what's called an antecedent river, meaning, you know, most rivers kind of form based around how the mountains are coming up and just flow downhill, right? Not the South Nahani River. No, it's such a big and powerful river that it kind of dictated where the mountains came. Like it just plowed its own way and the earth adapted to it, which is exceptionally rare. Uh, it also means, you know, like I said, it's dang powerful. So that's why you've got rapids everywhere, because when you're on it, it's, you're at its mercy. And it's responsible for carving those four impressive canyons I mentioned a minute ago. The first canyon, this, the proper name of it is First Canyon, has these huge, and I can't, I can't emphasize that enough, huge vertical walls of limestone. I mean, it really honestly looks like, you know, like the finger of God just came down through these limestone masses and cut a path for this river to go through. And the walls look like sheer glass almost. I mean, except the rock. But, you know, it just has that impression where it's just, you are down in this river and the earth has grown up around you. The second canyon begins at what is known as the Big Bend, where this where the river takes this huge 45-degree turn. It's kind of, at this point, the walls aren't as vertical. They start to slope off a little bit. The third, can, uh, third canyon is at the other side of the Big Bend, and it too, ha its slopes have gone from being vertical to, you know, a 30, 45 degree angle somewhere in there, but they last forever. When you're sitting in a canoe down in the river, it looks like the slopes just go on for ages. And they're made mostly of shale and sandstone and things like that. And then the fourth canyon, which actually is also known as the Painted Canyon or the Five Mile Canyon, begins where Virginia Falls begins. And Virginia Falls is just this massive waterfall. Like in North America, we think of Niagara Falls as being this really big and dramatic waterfall. Well, Virginia Falls is over twice as big as Niagara Falls. And it's got this giant rock jutting out from it called Mason's Rock. And it just looks so cool. I mean, it's a Lord of the Rings type background scene. Um, you know, it, it's just crazy. Now, I've talked about how tall a lot of these canyon walls are, and I can't stress that enough, but as tall as those walls are, the river is just as deep. I mean, it is hundreds, 
if not thousands of feet deep. This is not just like some little stream. I just can't, I just can't express from what I've read. Like this is a bad mofo that's running through here. The, the South Nahani river, it ain't something you just let your kids play. <laughs> I mean, it is for serious, serious explorers, adventurers, um, you know, people who are really into riding the rapids and things like that. This valley also has a ton of wildlife, as you can imagine. A whole mess of birds and fish. But, you know, the showstoppers are going to be things like grizzly bears and black bears and timber wolves. There's moose and bison and caribou and even wolverine here. So you've got a bunch of, you know, nasty critters uh, living in a pretty nasty place to be transversing through. Uh, you know, very rocky very dangerous to hike through unless you know what you're doing. Um, and so, you know, I know that I just have such a verbal flair that you're you're imagining the scene like you're looking at a Claude Monet masterpiece, right? But we can see we can see on the edges where there's a little bit of spookiness just from just from pure description of the land. You can see where things are a touch off, right? We've got this history of these bloodthirsty raiders who just merely disappeared overnight. We have a variety of pretty nasty animals who like eating anything, including humans. We've got this pretty rough terrain. There's really rough weather because we're right around the Arctic Circle. And of course, as we're about to learn, there's gold in them, their hills, which means people are going to take some crazy risks in order to try to earn some crazy money. Okay. And we're going to start our real dive into this with one of those stories. So this tale is kind of famously known as the lost McLeod mind. Okay. And it, again, it's probably the most well-known and popular story out of the Nahani region, at least to outsiders. And this story was brought to my attention by a YouTuber by the name of Mr. Ballin. He, he, has, he does like two or three videos a week just highlighting mysteries in the world, creepy tales in the world, you know, stuff that we would be into. I've got a link to his version of this tale about the lost mine in the show notes. Um, you can search Mr. Ballin Headless Valley and it should come up on YouTube, but I, I would check it out. He's a very, very good storyteller, <laughs> way better than me. Um, and he really gets to talking pretty deep about several of these stories. And, and I relied on, on him as one of my sources here because he did, obviously such a thorough job in researching it. So props, Mr. Ballin, but stick with me for the moment. Um, one thing I talk about he doesn't is hydrofoils. So you want to hear about that, right? Okay, so the story goes that there's brothers Willie and Frank McLeod. And during the gold rush of the early 20th century, they decided to make a run into Northwest Canada in an effort to strike it rich. Their thinking was, look, 
gold was being found in like the Yukon and all these places in Canada. Nobody wants to go down to the Nahani Valley. It's a pain in the butt to get down there. We're experienced outdoorsmen and hunters. Let's give it a shot. Odds are we wouldn't have any competition. And so if we did find something, there wouldn't be any the cutthroatness that goes on. It would just be ours to keep. So the two of them, along with their oldest brother, Charlie, made an expedition into the Nahani Valley in 1904. Now, they went down what's called the Flat River, which is one of the main kind of offshoots from the South Nahani River. Um, and, of course, it was by no means flat. It's just rapids and difficult to maneuver through and all that. And especially when you're thinking about 19-aught level of technology. So the threesome, you know, goes out. They kind of find what looks like a good place to set up camp off the shore get there, and literally the afternoon that they finish setting up their camp, they start uh, panning for gold, and they find it. They find it that quickly. And they find it everywhere. This is like, you know, how Willy Wonka's chocolate factory was made of candy, like everything was edible. It was like this spot they found, everything was gold. You just stuck your hands down in the dirt and you came up with nuggets. It was insane. So, of course, you know, they're dancing and a hooting and a hollering and excited about becoming rich. So they pack everything they can, you know, every, every box, every bag, every container. Um, just fill it to the brim with gold. And then they load up their little canoe slash boat thing. And they're, you know, they decide we've got enough. This will get us home. We can then finance a proper voyage here where we can really come and dig all the, the meat off this bone and really make a fortune. I mean, they were only there two to three days, if you listen to the legends, before they were overflowing with gold. That's how amazing the spot was. And again, they just randomly stopped, picked a spot and hit it rich. Which to them meant, well, this whole freaking valley around the Flat River must be busting with gold. So they, they just couldn't be more excited. They just couldn't be more excited. So they jumped back into their boats or their canoes or their hydrofoils, whatever it was, and decided they're going to take their newfound riches home. But that's not what the valley had planned for them. Not long into their trip home like literally minutes within to their trip home, the first set of rapids they come across was just too much for their watercraft and it capsized. And then it got smashed into a million pieces. It's not like it just broke in half. It's not like it was just dented up. It was like some ancient fist came down from the sky and just smashed it. So the brothers salvaged what they could and made their way back to their original camp. They had to swim there. That's how far they had gotten. They were still within swimming distance, okay? And they had salvaged, you know, a rifle, some ammunition, tents, um, several, you know, lots, lots of pieces of lumber from their craft, some hide, things like that, but not one ounce of gold. Every bit of gold was gone. 
and of their painting, their mining slash painting equipment. They only had one thing left to really help them dig for gold. So at night, you know, they set up camp again and they're just wet. They're miserable, of course, beyond frustrated because God knows how much money they just lost to the bottom of this river. And they start panning for gold again. And I kid you not, not a single bit of gold dust could be found. They're at the exact same spot where hours ago they couldn't help but trip over nuggets of gold. And now, for whatever reason, not a drop, not a single nugget, nothing. So, you know, they're short on supplies, they're frustrated, but they know that there's gold. They know that now. They've seen it, they've held it, they've touched it, they almost got it out of there. So they said, look, we're going to go home. We're going to kind of save up some money to finance a bigger operation to come back out here. And then we'll do this right. So they, with the tools they were able to recover, they built another canoe or hydrofoil or whatever. And then went home and experienced no problems getting home. They were frustrated and upset, but they were alive. Well, the brothers kind of had a bit of a disagreement at this point because Willie and Frank were like, we got to start saving. We got to get back out there as quick as we can. Charlie, the older brother, was like, look, guys, you're my brothers. I love y'all, but I feel like we were really lucky to get out of there with our lives. And so I don't think we should go. And if y'all insist on going, then I'm just bowing out. And, you know, it's all yours. Whatever you find is yours. I'm, I'm not going to get in your way with it. I just, I can't do it. I can't do it. But Willie and Frank are just dead set on going out there. And, I mean, how can you blame them when your first time out there, you just randomly pick a spot and you find more gold than you can carry, right? So they decide to go back out, and they go out there with what many reports describe as a close friend by the name of Robert Weir. So it takes some it takes a while to raise some money and all that. But finally, in 1906, they set out and they kind of leave in a hurry. They don't really take care of their affairs properly. And so nobody really knows when to expect them. To return back home, at least. And so they're gone, you know, three or four months and friends and family are getting worried. And Charlie's like, look, don't, don't worry about them. They know what they're doing. First of all, second of all, there's so much gold out there. I, I have no doubt that they found some, they're setting up a bigger operation. You know, they're living life. You know, a few months later, again, people are starting to get nervous and all that. And he said, guys, I'm, I'm not worried yet. If I were the, with them, I know what we'd be doing, okay? We'd be extracting as much as that sweet yellow honey dust from the Canadian rocks before we came home, if we even came home. And this continued for about a year. And all the while, Charlie's just saying, it's good. Don't worry about it. Everything's good. But somewhere between year one and year two, Charlie starts losing his confidence. And he's like, you know, they haven't even sent a letter, which is odd. I get that they're digging up, you know, all this gold, but you think they would at least send a letter to rub it in my face as their brother, right? 
So he decides it's time for him to go out there. So he forms up a party. And, you know, even if, you know, he's going out there hoping that they're enjoying a life of riches and luxury and hookers and cocaine and blackjack and all the wonderful things in life, right? And he, but he just wants to make sure they're okay. He's the big brother. He's got to protect them, right? So he gets his team. They, you know, the only real way to get into this valley is to a really arduous hike and they make it. They get to the flat river and Charlie says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We don't know where they stopped exactly because all three of us were under the impression that you could stop anywhere on the flat river and find gold. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to as far downstream as we can on the flat river and then work our way upstream. Now, this means we're going to be battling the rapids the entire time. We're going against the flow of the water. It's going to be it's going to take a long time. It's going to be tiring, but the good thing is we'll have plenty of time to scout the shorelines. We'll have plenty of time to look out for my brothers and I guess Robert too. It's going to suck, but this is the best, smartest way to do it. So Charlie takes his team and they go the entire length of the flat river and find nothing. No sign of Willie, no sign of Frank, or even that little scamp Robert, right? So faced with the choice of going back down the flat river and returning home, or at this point turning onto the South Nahani River, Charlie decides to attack the Big Mama. So they turn onto the South Nahani River. Rather than trying to do the impossible and go upstream, he says, look, we're going to go downstream as slow as we can just to check ahead. But again, because of the way the South Nahani River kind of cut its way through the earth, there's not a lot of good stopping points on there. Remember, a lot of these canyon walls, you know, like I described, are, are like just sheets of glass. And so there's not anywhere to park and rest. And so they enter onto the South Nahani just before you get to the second canyon, which is just before that big bend. And you remember, as you go from the first to the second to the third, the slopes of the walls start letting up some. And, you know, we discussed some details of the canyon earlier, but let's talk about the second canyon a bit more, because that's where a lot of this story takes place. Again, first canyon, the walls are just basically at a 90 degree angle to the water. I mean, just straight up and down. Second Canyon, it's not that bad, but really, if you're in a boat in the water, it looks just as bad. It's It looks like glass, you know, just walls of glass made of rock. There's, and it looks like these canyon walls just go up into the heavens. You have very limited daylight because of that. You know, the, the sides of the canyons block out a lot of the sunlight. There's no shoreline to speak of. And so this 10-mile area that covers Second Canyon is just abandoned in all intents and purposes. It's, it's just as natural as it can be. Now, one thing about the canyon walls is because they're so tall and so narrow the wind really gets down in there and really whips you in your face. And it makes 
all these howling noises. And a lot of people, even today, who go down this part of the river say, oh, it's disturbing. You know, the wind makes some evil sounding noises. Another creepy thing about this area is even though we've got these flat walls, you can see holes in them. And people have figured out over the years that they're not just holes, they're part of a cave system. And they've never been explored. Uh, because they're just so hard to get to. You know, I mean, you can't... If, if it's 50 feet off the ground and all you've got is a canoe, how are you going to get to it? And so... People say, like, not only do you have this wind just rushing down on you and making all these noises, you just have this feeling, this constant, nonstop feeling that there's something in those caves that's watching you the entire 10 miles that you go down Second Canyon. And, like, so many explorers and so many visitors just say, I can't imagine going back through it. It was so creepy. You know, and it, they're, since they're up so high, it's not like you can look in them and see who's there. You, you just know there's a hole there. But somebody standing 12 inches back watching you, you're not going to be able to see them. And, you know, this is, don't forget, this is mixed in with these legends of disappearing tribes and ancient monsters living in the area. So, you know, we, we got to make sure we keep the mood here, right? For the purpose of the story. So that's what we're dealing with. You know, it's just basically one giant natural ambush scene. So anyway, Charlie and his team are working through all this nonsense in 1906 with whatever technology they had back then. And they make their way almost through all of second Canyon when they discover a shoreline, and sure enough, on that shoreline, they see a tent. And so, of course, Charlie orders all of his team, we're going over here. So, they pull up onto shore to see what the story is with this tent, and it's not a real pretty story. When the party approaches, rather than finding some sort of welcome mat, they find a dead body. One that's been burned and charred and is kind of left laying in this unnatural position, almost as if it was reaching for something. And sure enough, about four inches away from the end of the fingertips is a rifle, right where this poor man has died. And most gruesome of all, the head is gone. It's just been cleanly lopped off. Gone. On the other side of the tent, and this would have been where the opening to the tent would be, Charlie's team would find another body. And this body is one that's very decomposed and is wrapped in blankets in a very odd way. Not, not an unnatural way. It was more like, I guess, if you heard a loud noise and you tried to jump out of bed quick and you got tangled in your blankets, that's kind of what it looked like. And so they kind of had to unravel the blankets to ensure it was a human body, even though that's clearly what they all suspected. And when they did, they realized that even though, you know, part of the blanket had kind of melted onto the skin and was 
frozen onto it, stuck to it. You know, they had to work to get it apart. The dude's head was missing too. It too was just clean cut off. Naturally, the party searches the area thoroughly. And they find enough odds and ends between the body and the area surrounding the camp that Charlie's pretty dang confident these are his two brothers. But there's no heads, you know, at least not in the journal area. They can't find heads anywhere. And it's not a huge plot of real estate to search. Also at their campsite, they discovered a carving on a piece of timber of some sort. And all it said was, we have found a promising site. Which, of course, Charlie took to mean they struck gold again. But guess what's not at the scene? Any evidence of gold whatsoever. And when I mean that, there's not even gold residue left on any of their equipment or anything like that. There's, there's no evidence they found gold, despite a sign saying we found gold, essentially. Now... There's lots of different versions of the story if you look into it. What I've presented is kind of the most popular, the most common, and I think the most accepted. Probably the second most common version is identical in all respects except the two men were tied to a tree. Still dead, still decapitated. Uh, but they had been restrained before death. Stories that this that follow this version claim that the trappers, that trappers and explorers in the region probably, you know, saw these men coming up with gold and decided it'd be easier just to murder them and take what they found rather than finding their own prospects. And they also claim that they they ran into a third man who was headed away from the scene. Uh, he w- wouldn't stop to identify himself, you know, even though that was a common thing among the outdoorsmen there. They, Whenever they saw another human, they would stop and talk and get the latest news that they had for each other and all that. But supposedly this guy wouldn't speak to anybody, and he was even allegedly reported being seen at a training post that wasn't terribly far from this camp. And at this trading post, he was noteworthy because he claimed to have found gold and was showing it off to people. There's the third version of this tale kind of takes place in its own universe. This one doesn't really track the other two at all. Uh, I'm sharing it just because it's interesting, but I don't I don't personally buy into it. But this story is that when the brothers got to the flat river, they were at one of the trading posts, and they kind of befriended some of the local indigenous people and traded with them in an effort to get information about where they could for sure find gold. They were shown a spot, but when they got there, they could tell like this spot has been picked over pretty heavily and they thought it would be dried out so they decided to go find their own spot so they built their own canoes they built their own handmade sluices which are you know the little devices you use to 
shift dirt and rocks from gold. Um, and they decided to head down the Flat River a little bit. 110 miles down the Flat River. Then the Flat River connects with a smaller river called the Laird River. And they decided to follow it for 80 miles in a boat they had made by hand when they got to one of these forts, right? So they set up camp somewhere 80 miles down the Laird River and began prospecting. They apparently found some, but not a lot of gold. They went back to Fort Laird to trade. When they got there, Willie decided that prospecting wasn't for him. And he decided to work with the Hudson Bay Company for a spell. But then his brother Frank talked him into giving it one more go, and they went out on a third expedition. But this is the one they don't return from. And allegedly they met Robert while at Fort Laird, and he joined them and was later arrested in Vancouver after being tracked down by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and they found over $8,000 worth of gold on him at the time of his arrest. They allegedly charged him with the murder of Willie and Frank. Uh, FYI, $8,000 worth of gold from 1906-ish would be roughly $250,000 in today's money. So a good chunk of change. Again, that's <laughs> nothing in that story matches with what Charlie was told the plan was or what he saw happen. You know, they were saving their money so they could finance this operation. If you believe this third story and they just showed up without nothing and had to trade for mining equipment and boats and all that stuff and didn't have a plan where to go or anything like that. Now, um, going back to Charlie and his little, when they find the campsite slash crime scene, they were all surprised that they found no evidence of Robert being there. So, of course, I know that us, triggers us all to start thinking, well, <laughs> Robert grabbed that gold and got the heck out of there, didn't he? Yet, several months later, another team of explorers who just happened to be passing through the area found, jammed into some rapids, a skeleton. And... They pulled it out and alerted the authorities and whatnot. And the description of the skeleton, the you know size of it, the measurements, all that, matched Robert pretty well. But ha no science was ever applied to confirm this assumption. And so, formerly, Robert's never been found. But the Royal Canadian Mounted Police said, that's got to be Robert. That skeleton has to be Robert. There's... It wouldn't make sense any other ways. You know, the rapids he's found isn't far from the camp where he was staying at. So um, now Charlie and his team decided that they needed to alert the authorities. And so the, the Mounties come and check out the crime scene and reach some interesting conclusions. They decide that all three men who were staying there died of starvation. They said that the reason Willie and Frank's head was missing was due to animals finding it and carrying it off. 
So the reason Robert's body was gone was also due to animals, you know, snacking on it and carrying it off. Now Charlie instantly challenged these conclusions, saying it had to be some local savage tribesmen, but the Mounties weren't going to have any of that, and Charlie just kind of begrudgingly buried his brothers at this campsite and erected two small crosses to mark their graves. There wasn't anything else he could really do in that situation. When the story of these deaths reached the news at the time, it became like a super popular episode of Unsolved Mysteries or some show like that. People instantly started forming their own opinions and they were dividing off into factions at work while they sneered at the other stupid people who just didn't have their theories right. So we had one major group that was of the opinion that that third skeleton wasn't Robert. He had murdered the two brothers and escaped with all the gold. That third skeleton was just someone else who lost their life trying to go down the river. They pointed to the lack of any gold dust, uh, coupled with no scientific confirmation that Robert had ever been found to support their beliefs. The other big faction in this debate war claimed that something killed the three men, either animal, human, or monster. It was the only way to explain how the brothers died reaching for their gun and the other one died jumping out of bed. And then there was a third group that accepted the Mountie story, but they were a bunch of nerds, so everybody else just made fun of them. Now, regardless of what faction you were in, humanity as a whole was kind of shaken as this event, and it caused the canyon where the bodies were found to take on the nickname the Valley of the Headless Men or the Headless Valley. Despite people now knowing without a shadow of a doubt that there's gold in this valley, and despite this prospecting fever overtaking North America at the time, no one was willing to go down to test their luck by prospecting in the Valley of the Headless Men again. Of course, though, greed is a mighty powerful motivating force, and it can overcome most people's fears within us enough time. So let's jump ahead about a decade and learn about a gentleman by the name of Martin Jorgensen. He was a prospector from Sweden who decided in 1917 that, look, we know there's gold down there, and yes, we've got these ghost stories, and, you know, we had some murders, which are unfortunate, but we shouldn't let this stand in the way of fortune and all our dreams coming true. So Martin decided to head to the Nahani Valley on his own. Now, he had formed a team, but his plan was, look, I'm going to go find the spot where the gold is. I'm going to set up camp. You know, I'm a very experienced outdoorsman, hunter, trapper. I can survive the winter. And then when the snows start to melt, I'll come back for y'all, team. And then we can set up an operation to really get as much gold in a little amount of time as possible and get it out of the canyon before the snows fall again a few seasons later. And, you know, that's a 
pretty bold plan. He's going out into the valley in the fall by himself. But, you know, he goes out there. He builds a small cabin, just a one-room cabin, but good for him. He was exploring the valley, making kind of a little map of the area, getting a feel for it. And once he was comfortable, he started doing some initial prospecting of locations that looked promising. And as luck would have it, he struck gold immediately. In fact, he did it so quick that he was able to get a message back to his team before the snow shut down all the roads, proclaiming that they had just struck it rich. He also sent them the location of his cabin, so in case anything happened and he didn't make it to the meetup spot, they knew where to go to find his stuff. Well, of course, the team was ecstatic. They just went crazy. They loved it. And that winter just had to be such an awfully long time for them. I mean, they had to be counting the hours waiting for the snows to melt so they could go and basically find their retirement, right? But they waited because they had no other choice. And, you know, once finally the snows were melting and it was starting to look like spring, they ran over to the predetermined rendezvous spot and they waited there, but Martin didn't show up. They apparently had some sort of drop dead date. And I have no idea what it was. And this is me speculating here, but I, from what I read, I have a feeling that, you know, if the drop dead date was noon on Tuesday at 1201 they were heading towards that cabin by God they were excited they wanted to see what Martin had set up and what he had found and so they marched at this furious pace up into the mountains and the woods and found Martin's cabin or at least what was left of Martin's cabin something had burned the cabin to the ground. This wasn't some sort of bad luck lightning strike. This was a flamer with a brand new can of gasoline sort of fire, okay? It took everything to the foundation. It burned everything all the way down. In the backyard of the cabin, they found Martin dead in his sleeping bag. Some reports claim he didn't have any burns. Some claim that he was very badly burned. Regardless, he's dead in a sleeping bag in the backyard with his head missing. Mounties get called up again. They do a full and thorough investigation and conclude Martin had to die from some sort of wild animal attack. Yeah. And that the cabin fire was just kind of one of those freak things. When reporters asked about whether or not this case would relate to the McLeon brothers, the police said it didn't. They saw no connections between the two crimes other than they just happened to occur in the Nahani Valley. The, what's the nice way to say this? The public respectfully disagreed. They refused to accept that two crime scenes featuring prospectors would end with their heads being cut off and it occurring in the same geographical area only 10 years apart. 
And it had to be those darn savages if you listen to the all-knowing white man. Uh, in fact, a lot of Canadian reporters began referring to indigenous people as headhunters in Canadian newspapers. Others, a minority of people, believed that there was some sort of lone wild man killer who was hunting prospects. And then, of course, we have sprinkled in the cracks the legends about monsters and vengeful spirits and all that, of course. Again, for the record, Martin's head never found. And again, no evidence of gold ever being in or around the cabin was found. And, you know, Martin's team poked everywhere because they had spent all this time being excited about the gold, right? And they knew that it had to be in the nearby area if Martin was able to find it so quick. So they spent a lot of time out there digging around for gold and found not a bit of gold dust. So those are kind of the two big tales you get whenever you look into the Nahani Valley. But there's so, so many more. I'm going to kind of go through them a little bit quickly so you get a taste for them. Most of these stories aren't as well documented, so I couldn't belabor them too much even if I wanted to. But, I mean, you got to hear all these just to get a flavor for how weird this area is. So our next story is about this fellow by the name of John O'Brien. It takes place in 1921. Mr. Ballin also tells this story if you want to listen to him um, in the the same episode I referenced before. So O'Brien and his partner decided that they wanted to go out into the valley and hunt for this gold too. They just, by chance, nobody, because this was not something that was widely reported, but they just happened by chance to set up camp near where the Mechaloids um, had set up camp. And... Both uh, O'Brien was a really good trapper. And so he decided that rather than waste time hunting or whatnot, he would just set a ton of traps all along the river's edge. And then he would go check them periodically so they would never be short of food. So they get to their camping spot. And they immediately have good luck finding gold and all that. And O'Brien told tells his partner, who we don't know who his partner was, for whatever reason, his name's been lost to history, that he's going to go check all the traps. You know, we're, we got a good start going here. Let me go check the traps. I'll bring back food. And he said, it's going to take me about eight days. So if I'm not back by the eighth day, come looking for me. So the partner, you know, kept prospecting and hanging out and passing time, however you do when you're a prospector. And, you know, O'Brien didn't return after eight days, but he didn't get too worried. Ninth day comes and goes. That night he starts to get a little worried. So the tenth day decides, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go check to see if O'Brien's okay. So he's working his way up the river. And he just happens to run into another trapper in the area. And again, like I said earlier, you know, when you're out in the middle of nowhere, you run somebody else, you you tend to make friends pretty quickly. 
And so this random trapper said, I'll help you look. I'll be happy to. So they, you know, kind of march up and down the river and they work their way to where they find evidence of a campfire that had recently been set and extinguished. And sitting there at the campfire is O'Brien. Dead. Now he has his head. He has his head, okay? But the odd thing is, O'Brien is frozen to death in what couldn't be a situation where he would freeze to death. Again, he's sitting in front of a campfire. Both men reported that O'Brien's kind of sitting there like you do when you're in front of a fire, just kind of watching the flames, pondering the world. And it, you know, they described it as it looked like he had just been like flash frozen. Like he had just been frozen in time sitting there. Uh, he was even in his hand was holding a book of matches. But the dude was totally, completely frozen. Of course, police are called. Armed. What about what? Royal Canadian Mounted Police. The RMC, RCMP uh, show up. And just chalked it up to one of those things. Just a random bit of death that happens in these areas of the woods. Couldn't explain how he flash froze. Didn't even want to try. But... O'Brien's partner and that other trapper both gave separate statements and they were like, we find the fire pit. It's still smoldering a little bit. The earth is black. Clearly there was a fire here. Clearly O'Brien could have kept warm, but he somehow flash froze and he didn't panic. He wasn't balled over trying to conserve heat or anything. He just kind of like sat there. Let it overtake him, I guess. All right, now we're going to jump forward in time a good bit uh, to 1962. We have a very light aircraft experiencing some engine trouble. Fortunately, the pilot's a good pilot. And he manages to... He has to crash, but it's a smooth crash. A very smooth crash, uh, if there is such a thing. And it's square in the Nahani Valley. Before he crashed, he was able to radio his position. Um, and so he was confident that, look, he, I will be found in a matter of days. It's no big deal. So he just set up camp. He happened to have plenty of food, plenty of other surprise. So he said, look, this is just, I'm treating this as a vacation, okay? And that's what he does. Like, he sets up tent. He goes hiking. He enjoys the view. He fishes some. Just has fun. He uh, he was a journal, you know, he kept a journal. And so every night as he stared up and looked at the stars, he would write down what happened that day and his thoughts and whatnot. And his diary indicated that, you know, on more than one occasion, in fact, on several occasions, he saw rescue planes out looking for him, and some of them got as close as six miles to his crash site. But none seemed to notice him, and he couldn't figure out why, because it's not like they're just looking for a tent in the middle of the woods. They're looking for a tent, you know, a few hundred yards away from a crashed airplane <laughs> in these woods. 
And, you know, you can, apparently from the diary, of course, I haven't read the original, but you can just tell that he's getting more and more frustrated and more and more scared as time goes by because they're out looking for him and they can't see him and he doesn't know what to do. So he waits at camp for 50 days, exactly 50 days, before his journal entry just ends. And that's it. The planes never find him. His planes never spotted. It's like he disappeared. Six months later, after these 50 days have run, at least, six months after that point, some guys are hiking in this area. And they stumble across the plane. Then they find the camp. And they see his journal and his supplies and all that. But there's no trace of the pilot. Uh, In fact, no evidence of his body has ever been found. Like ever. Like ever, ever. (laughs) This is, and this is not the only time this has happened. Like, plane crashes are known to occur in the Nahani Valley when planes are flying around an area known as Funeral Ridge. For whatever reason, this spot of the valley seems to interfere with mechanics and electronics, and multiple planes have gone down. This is just kind of the most dramatic story of a plane crash that I had found. Interestingly, at this exact Location is also known as a hotbed for UFO type activity. And so if you hike out to Funeral Range and spend some nights there stargazing, you supposedly are almost guaranteed to see a extraterrestrial based light show of some sort. All right, let's go back and do another prospector. We're going to go back to 1931 and meet Bill Powers. But we're going to meet him posthumously. He was found dead in his cabin after it too had burned down. The RCMP claimed that, well, the fire had to start because the stovepipe he installed was faulty. And because of that, it ignited the roof timbers and it burned up on him one night and he died. Well, Phil didn't live off, you know, on his own away from everybody. He was pretty well known in the area. He was a good guy. He was known for helping hunters and trappers and things like that. He socialized. He would go to the trading posts and nearby little setups. And everybody who knew Phil said, no, there's no way. This guy was way too smart to build a stovepipe in such a way that it was leaning against timber that could ignite. Other oddity... The fire itself didn't make sense because it burned way too hot. If you're believing the Mounties explanation, it could not have burned the way it burned. Because even though there's, you know, their theory, look, stovepipe touching the roof, caught it on fire, got too hot, roof burned down, blah, blah, blah. No, here, the roof burned away so quickly it didn't have time to collapse. The walls burned away so quickly they didn't have time to collapse. Phil's body was almost completely ash when they found it. There was only a couple bones left. It's, I mean, 
Spontaneous human combustion is a better explanation for this death than what the Mounties offered. And again, not a single local agreed with what the Mounties were offering up. They, they said, we don't know what happened, but Phil did not build that, ha- that cabin wrong. That stovepipe was installed just fine. And even if there was a problem, you know, that, that's the type of fire that would take some time to burn. You would have had the beams fall in and, you know, the wall, certain walls wouldn't have been touched by fire at all. Certain sections of the floor, because once that roof collapsed in, you know, you have gone from having a traditional looking house to having one that was shaped more like the letter M with the, the ceiling timbers in the middle of the house. Uh, and that would have put out a lot of the fire. Yeah, it just didn't add up. It just didn't add up. And so everybody was very suspicious of the Mounties investigating techniques when you've got this coupled on the three beheadings that preceded it. Now, we can't cover a story about the Nahani Valley without discussing the mad trapper of Rat River. That's, I mean... This sounds like something you would run at Blockbuster with your friends when you wanted a cheesy horror night in high school, right? If uh, if you guys know what a Blockbuster is, if you don't ask your parents. All right, so regardless, in the 1930s, the Mounties were getting complaints of this hunter-trapper guy who lived in the Nahani Valley that other trappers said he's nuts. He keeps messing with us. He keeps intentionally ruining our traps, stealing whatever we do catch. Um, He's just a menace. We need you to do something about this. So he apparently had entered the Nahani Valley originally to look for the McLeod's the odds um, hidden mine that they had found, but went crazy in isolation. Maybe he was crazy when he went there. Uh, And he went by the pseudonym Albert Johnson. And so, you know, the police finally had enough and better rough idea where he lives. They go out there and uh, knock on his door and, you know, say, Hey, it's, Police, we need to talk to you. He responds by firing a shotgun through the door. He actually hits a captain of the mounted police, but he he lives. He's fine, but he's he's you know just dehabilitated for the purposes of this event. And a chase begins. The chase lasts for sixty miles through this back country. It's ninety-seven kilometers. Finally, after these 60 miles, Johnson got away from the Mounties, which, wow, that's an impressive chase. I can't believe the Mounties were able to stay on him for that long. I can't believe he had the energy to keep going that long. Uh, It's impressive. Several months later, just by happenstance, the Mounties run into Johnson again. And this time, he goes, he leads them on a chase again. This one lasts 150 miles or 240 kilometers. 
before he finally kind of gets trapped in an area of, you know, it, it was never very well described, but I imagine it's, he's on the edge of a cliff and there he's got the high ground, but there's a bunch of them that have him pinned down. And so he, he dies as he lives. Uh, he, he ends up getting hit during a shootout. And that, you know, takes care of the mad trapper of Rat River. But when Mountie searched Johnson's body, they found in his pockets several gold teeth in his position. In his possession, excuse me. Um, which kind of raises this grim specter of what he had been doing with his free time. It sounds like he may have done a little bit of killing and tooth collecting. Which, personally, I take great offense to since I just went through that. Okay, now there's this another story. We're not done, yeah. There's this other. There's another story of the valley that is just video game like. I, I don't know another way to describe it. Prospectors have reported consistently that there is a tropical valley hidden in the Nahani Valley. Many different prospectors have reported finding it, but they all found it in different locations, never in the same spot. But they all describe it exactly the same way. There's no snow. There are hot springs everywhere. There's all this lush and exotic greenery. The soil is black and fertile, just perfect for growing crops. And the edge of the valley is ringed by this persistent Fog. Also within the valley is wild game that they said, you know, you, you would see an elk and rather than it looking like a typical muscular elk, it was so well fed, its body looked more like a rectangle than a typical elk's body. But again, every one of these prospectors, even though they're giving the exact same description, of what this mystical valley looks like, they all place it at a different part of the valley. And so if we believe their stories, it's almost like this little pocket dimension that's roaming around. And if you just happen to stumble into it, you stumble into this almost, I guess, Garden of Eden-like paradise in the middle of the... Canadian Northwestern Territory. It's bizarre. Way back in the intro, I promised something about cryptids, right? All right, so there are several in the area, but it's known for one in particular, known as the Wahila. And the Wahila is this huge, solitary, wolf-like creature from Inuit mythology. And I don't know a good way to describe the size of it. It's it's like a wolf that's been taking bear steroids, okay? It's massive. It would be like seeing a wolf the size of a minivan or, or probably something bigger than that. Um, and when people who have seen it describe it, they describe it in a manner that is extremely similar 
to the Amphician, Amphician, which is a giant dog-like mammal that went extinct millions of years ago. It was uh, this giant dog bear. Um, and that's what people are seeing. And the weird thing is, it's not these random trappers and prospectors who report seeing them. More often than not, the people who are reporting them seeing this creature are scientists who are out there conducting experiments in the wild. You know, this is a, a very, very, very remote area. Um, and it's kind of untouched by man. So, you know, biologists and geologists and just anthropologists, I mean, all these, you know, PhDs and other academic types love going out to this valley because they can conduct so much valuable research, but they keep running into the Swahili and getting the poop scared out of them by it, as you would if you just suddenly turned around and saw this wolf bigger than your minivan at home staring at you, you know? All right, um, there are many, many, many more legends we could go through. Um, I'm going to stop here by just touching on the Naha tribe again, because I'm kind of fascinated by them personally. Uh, this, this was a gang of some mean dudes and dudettes. They were, I mean, they, they had no problem just taking what they wanted or needed. They were known to dress some fearsome battle gear. Um, they were considered a terrifying sight to behold, but they just disappeared. They just blipped away. You know, we, of course, have to note that there's a lot of what we may be inclined to consider as exaggerations and fantasies mixed up in their legends. For example, they fought with these weapons that no other tribe had seen. Their warriors were considered, you know, to be somehow like specially bred giants, according to the Dene legends. Um, yet something made them leave. And we don't have any idea what. But we, I mean, it's something that scholars have looked into. And yes, to the extent that they can confirm that the Naha existed, they cannot confirm what happened to them. There is a theory that they may have migrated south down into uh, the United States and kind of been assimilated by the Navajo tribe. Uh, you know, I, I don't have the academic credentials to evaluate whether there's whether we can take that seriously or not, but that's one scientific theory on what happened to them. So, like I said, that's that's going to bring us to the end of these stories. Um, but, you know, we're not done talking about this one. I really enjoyed these legends. Um, you know, it has this four, missing 411 vibe to it. Of course, spookiness all around it. You've got several crime scenes. It's just kind of everything we do wrapped up into one, one episode. It's neat. Now, rumors claim that in the 1900s, there have been somewhere around 45 people that have gone missing. 
not just getting lost, not just succumbing to the rapids, but they go missing under very odd circumstances in the Nahani Valley. For example, there's one tale of a little girl who wanders off and apparently was seen for decades afterwards as this feral creature. Um, you know, that the it was always the Dene tribes that would run into her and they said, she's possessed by something evil, we ain't messing with her. You know, of course, police are quick to dismiss anything that's odd. Of course, on the surface, I believe that that's the correct thing to do. This is a massive, massive area of land that is very dangerous. And, you know, you can't get to it. You just can't. You either have to take an arduously long hike because the nearest town is two hours away. Or you've got to take, you know, a puddle hopper or a helicopter to get someplace in there. Once you're there, you know, there's no... There's no hospital clinics around. There's no grocery stores around. Um, you are truly in the wild, as wild as it can get. You are there. And like we mentioned at the top, lots of dangerous animals, lots of dangerous environments. So, you know, yeah, maybe Bubba has 30 years of hunting and trapping experience. Gravity can get him the same as it can get you and me if he takes the wrong step, you know? So... 45 people going missing isn't shocking to me. Um, and, you know, there's some researchers have looked into it in more detail, and they really question the number being as big as 45 because there's some folks that would go into the valley, find some gold, cash out, then start a new life elsewhere. You know, leave the wife and kids at home, leave all the bills and debts behind and just give yourself a new name and start over somewhere in Canada. I can see that happening with a lot of these cases. And, you know, I know we probably should go through each of these tales and break them down. That's what we do on the show in general. Um, but I don't, I don't want to. You know, the nine-year-old inside of me wants this to be this epic fantasy land with monsters and treasures and hidden valleys and Applying analysis to it just takes some of the magic away. So that that sucks. But we are going to touch on some of the stories just to just because I feel an obligation to. The more grounded ones, the ones we can really work with. Okay. I want to start with Albert Johnson, the mad trapper. Um yes, he was a murderer, in my opinion. I don't think he just collected those gold teeth randomly. I suspect his M.O. was probably to stumble across someone. The Someone would be friendly because that was the nature of the beast. And Albert would probably just shoot him and take whatever stuff they had. Um, yeah, he was just a loon. I, uh, I can't get behind any theories that suggest he was behind any of the beheadings. First of all, you know, he, he was known to operate in the 1930s. The beheadings all took place before then. Second of all, you know, he's he's crazy, but is he crazy to where he was cutting off heads and taking them with him? Um, you know, in this type of the world, you're not, you could shoot somebody and nobody would hear the gunshot, right? 
And so he could shoot them, clean out all their gold, I guess take a pair of pliers and just pull out the tooth, the gold tooth that he wanted and, and move on. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot of work to cut off somebody's head from what I understand. And I just can't imagine that's how he would choose to use his time. But he's also known for being very crazy. Uh, so who knows? But I think the time frame is the big thing that works against him doing things like that. Obviously, when we talk about the... McLeod Brothers, I, I believe the first story, the main story that we went through, that just seems to ring true. It matches up best with what Charlie had told his friends and family before he even left to go check on his brothers. The bodies being tied together, that alternative version doesn't hit me because you would have to subdue two, you know, pretty strong dudes um and for what purpose why would you subdue them tie them up and then cut off their heads uh you know and there's no evidence that they suffered any broken bones or anything like that so you'd have to do it in a pretty particular way it, it i dismiss that one because it's a lot of work for no real payoff there's one thing that needs to be mentioned, um, well, let me say this first. But now, well, there's, there are some reports that the missing head part of the story is um, fictional, that the heads were found uh, in the camp area. And in fact, it was uh, the hairs that were still left on the skull that helped police to identify the bodies. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I don't, I only saw isolated reports of that. And it doesn't match with the prevailing myth. Not that the myths necessarily mean anything on their own. A story about people being beheaded is going to last longer than a story about people being murdered. Um, but, you know, it's very odd why the heads are ripped off. I can't think of a good reason from a criminal point of view to do that other than, you know, if the Naha were mysteriously hanging around, that was kind of one of their trademarks, was decapitating their enemies. Um, no evidence they were around, of course. Um, but I just think that's a fun fact to throw in. You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know of any situation where ripping off somebody's head makes sense. So it's hard for me to, to say why you would do it. Um, so maybe I shouldn't pick at that thread anymore. You know, so many of these, especially the prospecting crimes, took place way back when, you know, 100 years ago, give or take. And, you know, crime scene investigations at the time then versus what we have now are will have just been a, a terrible mess uh, in our eyes. 
but I do find it really, really interesting that at all the prospecting crime scenes, there's no gold found. And I mean, no traces of gold. You have equipment designed to dig up gold that was used to dig up gold that people are telling the outside world, I used this and found gold. And when they were examined, because I, I, at least Charlie examined it. I don't know on the other murder uh, with Martin whether or not they did. But I have to feeling his team was so excited they would have looked at everything. But to have your mining equipment have no gold dust on it is just bizarre to me. To have, you know, no dust on your boots or on the hem of your jacket, between your fingers on your gloves, you know, none of that makes sense to me. There should be gold dust somewhere. Again, it could be that it was there and nobody thought to look for it or they didn't know there was such a minute amount they couldn't really find it on their own. I hope somebody will have thought to look for it, but it's really weird, really bizarre to me that prospectors who found gold are involved in a crime scene where there's absolutely no evidence that gold was present. And with that, you know, man, I really could keep rambling on and on and on and on and on. But I've, I've kind of got to cut it off somewhere and I'm going to cut it off here. Um, this, this is a fascinating story to me. It's, again, it's been my favorite episode to research. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it inspires you to read more about the Nahani Valley because again, you know, I just touched on one cryptid. I just touched on some alien encounters. There's so much more out there. Um, you know, I'm not an outdoorsman at all, so I'll never have the joy of visiting this place, but just go check out the pictures of how beautiful this land is. I mean, I, I totally get why it's such a protected area. When you combine all the cultural history with just the incredible beauty of the spot. Um, you know, if you're an outdoorsy type and you ever head up to this park, Please, please, please let me know, share pictures, tell us stories. I mean, I would I would be fascinated. I'd be like a, a four-year-old listening to Santa tell a story. <laughs> so, um, all right, grand old palate cleanser time. Please, everyone, calm down. Sit down. Let's let's pay attention, okay, for this week's submission. What did the flower say after it told a joke? Says, oh, I was just pulling your leg. See, we got, we got a nice little botany joke to go with our study of this beautiful land of trees and flowers and whatnot. Okay, well, we've talked a lot. To, well, I've talked a lot today. You haven't talked. I've talked a lot today. Uh, you've listened a lot. I'm sure we're both tired. Um, you know, let's agree that it's nap time. I'll call your boss, you call mine. We'll take it easy the rest of the day, okay? Deal? Wonderful. All right. As always, you know, keep it real, keep it nice. Thanks for continuing to support our podcast. You know, if you can, please leave us a five-star review and share us with your friends. If you want and are able to do something 
amazing. We've got lots of cool merchandise at our store, kmhpodcast.com slash store. Um, you know, you'll look at it and you say, I can't wear anything I own right now. I have to redo my entire wardrobe. And I understand. I understand. It's, that's a natural, rational reaction. And, you know, if, if you've decided that you got to get a seat on the Patreon train, just like our new crush Abby did this week, then please, we, we've got some speed, seats available. We'd love to have you. Um, we love you all. We appreciate you all. Don't don't tell the others, but you're our favorite listeners. So please keep coming around. Um, y'all are the best. Couldn't do this podcast without you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for giving me something to do in my free time. What little of it I have. Uh, with that, I will say... Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing Us and Hidden. The podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.